Welcome to the Naked Wellness Podcast. As a qualified nutritionist, I'm here to strip away the nonsense and get down to the bare essentials of nutrition and wellness. Join us as we debunk myths, chat with top-notch experts, and serve up practical tips that will leave you feeling empowered. Get ready to uncover the naked truth about living your healthiest life. Let's undress. Welcome back to the Naked Wellness Podcast. Today I have a special guest with me. I have Jill Anello, who is a certified personal trainer, specializes in fitness, nutrition, and is also a nutritional therapy practitioner, which is awesome. He has been through his own experiences, which really drive his strong passion for optimal health and longevity, which I also think is unreal. And Jill Anello has a no BS approach to health and he really uses that hardcore evidence and the scientific information that's out there to really help people become the healthiest version of themselves, which I love. So I am so excited for us to open up a conversation today. So welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It is a a, a pleasure to be here, a pleasure to talk with you and to reach your audience. And um, I was telling you offline, I love long form conversations Mm -hmm. because I think that's where the rubber meets the road and where people get a lot of valuable information that they can't get with just a you know 30 second sound bite on a television news show so i'm happy to be here and happy to have this conversation yeah i couldn't agree more did you want to start off with maybe giving us a little bit of an intro into yourself tell us you know what do you do about yourself your own journey that you've been on as well Sure, sure. Uh, So my background is a little bit different than I think most people. I did not spend my whole life in the scientific field, in in nutrition at all, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I actually grew up uh, as a lover of the arts. So I was a, or am, a musician and an actor. And uh, I was... uh, uh, an agent came up to me at a at a show and asked me if I move if I wanted to move to New York City and he would represent me and I said well of course that's every actor musician's dream is to move to New York City and so I did and I was doing shows and I was doing all these things and it was really fun I was uh, auditioning for Broadway shows and then you know as it does in that field sometimes the uh, the the gigs dry up a little bit and you need to make money and so i became a, a personal trainer and at that point i quickly realized that i couldn't get the results for my clients that i wanted to without a deeper understanding of nutrition and so started studying nutrition and then i just developed this secondary passion in life and my approach to nutrition i think comes from a creative point of view so i'm always thinking why i'm trying to problem solve and understand the biochemistry and uh you know as as i think again you said offline not just necessarily adhering to the um the status quo so i always i'm always an outside the box thinker and i think that creative background has has put me in an, a unique position in terms of um other nutritionists who maybe have always studied in the books and i've only recently maybe in the last 6 to 7 years been deep into the um educational part of it in academia so it's um a very winding road but but very happy to be here yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that that's your approach to it because there is so much information out there, right? And there are just like health trends is just something that there's always something new. It's always going. And the evidence behind a lot of the trends sometimes isn't as strong as what I think a lot of us hope it would be. You know, a lot of the diets that are out there, one person one day has decided to wake up and be like, I'm going to make a million bucks from selling this to people style of stuff. So I love that this is your approach. But in saying that, obviously, there is so much information out there. And one of the most common things that I hear from so many people is like, I just don't know how to become that healthiest version of myself anymore because I am so confused with so much information. So for you, what are the most common health myths that you see or hear in the health industry? How long do we have? There are so many. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, you know, I, I would say one of the first things is to try to get away from labels. I, I think, and I think I can say that with, with, honesty on almost every sort of diet you you could name, right? Whether you're talking plant-based or Uh keto or any of these things, it's not that any of them are necessarily uh, bad at their most foundational level. But I think what happens oftentimes is the labels get hijacked by producers of food, producers of products, people, uh, influencers looking to make a name for themselves, as you mentioned before. So I think one of the best things you can do, and it seems so simple, and and I, I really try to simplify 
the approach to nutrition because of, of what you had said, that, that the information can be so overwhelming that try to get away from the labels, try to, uh, you know, maybe instead of looking at the front of the package that says plant-based or keto, turn the package over and take a look. And if you've got a laundry list of ingredients, some of which you cannot pronounce, it's probably a good idea to put that food back and go find, you know, the single food ingredient, right? The meat, the vegetable, the fruit, the, you know, the, the food that really doesn't have an ingredient list. And that's, mm -hmm. it seems simple, but it's so, so hard to get that across to people that we should be eating foods that we recognize as the way they may have been in nature, either crawling on the ground, swimming in the ocean, growing in a tree, growing, you know, out of the ground, um, just really try to simplify things in a world that's trying to send you all different kinds of messages about what is or is not healthy. Yeah, I totally agree. I think we definitely almost overcomplicate nutrition and health. And you can always tell what the current trend is just by the front of the packaging on food. For an example, at the moment in Australia, I know that protein is like the biggest thing at the moment. So every product that you pick up, it will say high protein on it. But a lot of them you turn over, let's take like a protein bar, for an example, it will say high protein, you know, X amount percent of this bar is protein, but you flip the bar over and like, there's maybe five grams of protein in that bar. Mm. And if you compare that to like a muesli bar or something, it probably has like around similar anywhere from two to two to five grams in that as well. So and it's probably half the price than the protein bar that you're about to buy that actually isn't that high in protein. And so it's just really, really powerful to actually know how to read that label to not get sucked into these trends that are going around because they typically are more expensive, the products that do have all these different labels on them as well. So even going back to the basics, sometimes just literally don't overcomplicate over it, go back to what we know of shopping around the outside of the supermarket because that's where you know, you do have the whole foods, your dairy products, your meat sources, and go into the aisles when you need something specific. But the supermarkets are laid out, right? Like they they are very strategically set up for you to go in there and to be like wowed by all these products to be tempted to buy them. Yeah, I mean, and the colorful packaging and yeah. the, um, I always call it the illusion of choice, right? There's there, you go down the aisle and it seems like there's, you know, I think I did an experiment once where I found, uh, I, I was looking at Pop-Tarts and I was looking at Oreos and I looked on their website and there were like 86 different flavors or 88, maybe 86 flavors of Oreos and 66 flavors of Pop-Tarts. But when you turn the package around, you realize that they're virtually the same food, maybe with a different dye or a different coloring and the, and the front of the box looks different. And you are sort of fooled into this idea that, oh, well, I, you know, how can I choose from all these things? And, the, and the, the truth is you're really not, you're just choosing one processed food over the other that has mm -hmm. a different color. It's like, you know, it's like a kid who just takes a crayon and colors over something and now it's like a different thing. And it's not really that the case. So your, your idea is spot on. You go around the perimeter, the produce, the meat, the vegetables, uh, you know, the, you know, dairy, you know, those things that have been around with humans since humans have been around, those are always good. Those are the tried and true tested methods of health. And so I think that's really important to avoid those center aisles, even though they, they really want to filter you down those aisles. Uh, you know, and, and if you have kids, it's even worse because the kids yes. love the colorful packaging, but really try to stay to the perimeter. And I think you'll do better. Yeah, amazing. One myth that I, or one, I guess, health thing that I hear quite often from a lot of people is around sugar and the difference between sugar in processed products and the and the sugar in your fruit and the dairy and all of that sort of stuff. Love to know your opinion on the different sugars that there are and your advice to people around which sugars to go for, how much to go for, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's incredibly complicated and, and it's incredibly bio-individual because yeah. if I've got somebody who is a type two diabetic, yeah. um, so they're having trouble controlling their blood sugar, for that person, it's possible that even the sugar from fruit may not be their friend, you know, and, and that's really hard for people to grasp. But the thing is, you know, type two diabetes, generally speaking, doesn't occur overnight. So it's almost like you have to, it's almost like you're sort of now paying for the, for the, for the decades of, of metabolic dysfunction, where you may have to scale back on some foods that would even be considered natural, like we just spoke mm -hmm. about, just because you're at a different point than someone who's say 19 years old, physically active, playing sports, doing all these things where they could handle a bolus of sugar coming from, you know, 
three cups of grapes or something like that. Whereas someone who's, who's struggling with blood sugar control needs to lose weight, needs to balance their blood sugar. So even fruit may not be, uh, may not be the best choice there. And sure, fruit coming from those sources will come with other vitamins and minerals intact, but it doesn't negate the fact yeah. that the sugar is still there. And we just have to now be creative and find a way to get those vital nutrients in other places without the bolus of sugar, at least for a time period, until we're able to normalize blood sugar, switch the body's metabolism over into utilizing fat as a fuel as well, and then you know, if, if hopefully if the type two diabetes hasn't been going on for too long, we can recover some of that ability to metabolize glucose, then you can go back to eating some of those foods. So it's, I'm, I'm sorry, I wish it was for people. I wish it was a really simple answer, but unfortunately you really have to assess somebody where they're at and determine whether or not mm -hmm. they should be consuming things like, you know, even fruits, um, in the case of a, you know, of a type two diabetic. Mm, and I think that exactly what you just said is so important to highlight that when it comes to health, it's not a one size fits all. It is so individualized. And that's why it can be so dangerous if you just take a piece of information that somebody has put online or like you copy somebody else's lifestyle or somebody else's diet and you haven't actually worked out, is this what you personally and individually need? Because everyone's bodies work in such different ways. Right. Yeah, and, and sedentary lifestyles. Mm -hmm. you know, if you if you work an eight hour day work day sitting at a desk, your needs are going to be different than a person, say, who uh, works landscaping, you know, for a living and is outside in the sun, you know, lifting things and pushing things and mowing things and you know doing all that. Uh, your your nutrient needs, your protein needs, uh, you know, just so many things are different. So when I talk with people, I I really try and get their their lifestyle uh, and understanding of their lifestyle, not mm -hmm. just their medical history, but, you know, and, and the disease processes that they have or don't have, but also what their lifestyle is like, because that, that really does play into the, to the equation. Yeah, 100%. And so I guess another one, and obviously I know that carbohydrates can also impact different people's blood sugar levels and all of that. I guess when we look at just a healthy person, and for me, I have seen a lot of people come to me who have cut out carbohydrates in their diet before because of they wanted quick, rapid results that was very unsustainable for them. And it's caused more harm than any good to their body mentally, you know, their control around food. Now, I would love to know your opinion on carbohydrates, because I definitely think that there is a trend at the moment of cutting out major food groups, especially carbohydrates. Another great question. Another hmm, complex answer, I guess, <laughs> um, you know, because because it's funny, because from a biochemical perspective, mm -hmm. the, the actual truth is that carbohydrates are non-essential, which is mm -hmm. so, it's so interesting, right? Because, and, and I think speaking from, from a, a Western, you know, a, a, a U.S. dietary point of view, we prioritize carbohydrates because they're relatively cheap and easy and everywhere you go, you can get carbohydrates, right? Mm -hmm. But ironically, proteins, essential amino acids, which make up proteins and essential fatty acids, uh, those are the actual essential nutrients in the diet that we have to consume because the body cannot make them. Those are much harder to find in the sort of on the go food. So I think, I think that we don't need carbohydrates. However, mm -hmm. I do think again, that they can have a place in a, there was a, there was a great strength trainer who used to say, I had a phrase that I loved. He used to say, you just need to earn your carbohydrates. Because they are they are a quick burning fuel source. They provide instant energy. But again, if someone's going to work in the morning, if they have an orange juice and a bowl of cereal and some kind of pastry or a or a bagel or something like that with not a lot of protein, not a lot of fat, they're just spiking their blood sugar in 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 preparation for a utilization of energy. And then they go and they sit at a desk for eight hours. Those carbohydrates that turn into sugar in the bloodstream will then be turned into fat. Mm -hmm. And so we, we don't want that. So what I always tell people is if you are, uh, if you're going to exercise, say at some point of the day, carbohydrates are a great fuel source for that. You can also consume them after exercise. They're not necessary, but, but they can certainly be beneficial for, um, you know, for, for people who want to use them for athletic performance. I am a, an advocate for a ketogenic style diet, um, not in the sort of not in this sort of uh, celebrity version of a, of a of a ketogenic style. That I mean, but true ketogenic nutrition, I think, was is more in line with how humans maybe existed once upon a time. For instance, in the winter, when when crops and when uh, gathering was not really available, we would 
rely more on fasting and things like animal products and fermented foods, which would generally speaking be lower in carbohydrates. So mm -hmm. I guess I advocate for a lower carbohydrate, but only lower in terms of today, we've just maxed out our ability to handle carbohydrates. So lower in relation to what is usually what I tell people when they say, so you like low carb diets? And I say, I like lower carb diets mm. uh, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> so, okay. so there's like a little bit of a nuance there, you know? Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. And I guess it's also about balancing out the meals, making sure that you are still prioritizing your fats and your proteins and your micronutrients Absolutely. as well. And that it's not just one or the other. And I get in a Western diet, it's very, very easy to have a higher carb diet with just the access we have to it. You know, the cereals, like you said, the pastries, the biscuits, like everything. And if you just maybe put that focus towards, well, and I can have what I want, but I need to actually balance it out with proteins, fats, you're going to feel fuller, you're going to feel more satisfied as well, but you still can have those carbohydrates if you want in a balanced way. Yeah. And, and your, again, your point is spot on because most of those refined carbohydrates, which I think you can completely avoid because they don't really even come with nutrients. Most of them were stripped out during the processing and then either fortified or enriched to be added back. So yeah, unfortunately in the diets that I see a lot of people consuming that are struggling with weight or struggling with metabolic disease, it is a, a cereal in the morning it is some type of refined bread or something in the afternoon and then a pasta or something at, at dinner. And I say, carbohydrates are not the enemy. It's those refined carbohydrates. So if you want to get them, get them from fruits and vegetables. And I think it's a, it's a totally different ballgame because now you're actually getting some nutrients along with your carbohydrates rather than these stripped down, uh, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're, you know, again, most people don't realize if you've ever worn a uh, continuous glucose monitor, which yeah. can, can monitor your blood sugar. You, you, you take a, sort of like a naked carbohydrate that doesn't have a lot of fiber or a lot of protein or fat with it. And what it does to your blood sugar, even a healthy individual is amazing. It's an amazing experiment to see what that can do to somebody. And very often it can change their way of looking at food um, when they actually see what it does metabolically in the moment. It's very interesting. Mm. Oh yeah. hundred percent. I remember the first time that I wore one and I was so interested just even things you know like having rice the day that it was cooked to having rice you know after it's been in the fridge for an hour like just tiny little things like oh. that and how like yes. it impacts and like what the food is paired with as well and how much extra protein that isn't like everything it's Absolutely. so interesting you're right yeah yeah you got to self-experiment as we said before it's very <laughs> it's very individual and what works for one person may not work for somebody else uh you know age the lifestyle the whole thing so yeah i think that's a great point and, and um something everybody I, I wish you know in the u.s you can't you can't just go into the drugstore and get a continuous glucose monitor I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not sure how it is in australia but here you can't do it so you have mm -hmm. to either finger stick all the time or you have to get a doctor's prescription. Although I think there are some companies that are starting to make them more available, but um, you have to pay out of pocket. And so you have to be willing to shell out some money. But I think if you're concerned about your health, I think it's I think it's valuable information, at least to do for 30 days, just to see how your most commonly eaten meals actually affect your blood sugar. Because long-term blood sugar control is an indicator, in my opinion, of the trajectory of disease and where you may end up if you continue on that course. So I think it is valuable, but it's not always accessible for everybody. Mm, yeah, 100%. So another trend, I guess, that has going through its phases is vegan and plant-based. Mm. And I find for some people, maybe yes, but I like it works for them. I've also definitely seen the negative impact that the vegan diet can have on a lot of people, women, especially with things like hormone, acne, hair loss, gut issues, things like that. I have seen positive impacts that it's also had on people, but I would Love to know your opinion on the vegan diet. I've heard lots of things about it being the healthiest diet out there, all of that. So let's unpack that a little bit. Sure. So, I mean, unfortunately, I, I've seen a lot more negative than I have positive. And I think, um, you know, I think, I think a couple of things, the, the positives, yeah. we always have to consider where somebody came from when they're making a dietary switch. That's a big one because almost any diet that is, inclusive of whole foods will be better than, you know, the, the sad diet. So for non-American audiences, that's a standard American diet, which is just terrible. Uh, and is it, as we discussed, you know, sort of really high in refined mm -hmm. carbohydrates and refined fats like seed oils and all the, all of these things that are just very unhealthy. And so then if you go to a diet that is mostly truly fruits and vegetables, 
your body will immediately right the ship and you'll some weight loss will happen, inflammation will go down, you'll gain all these amazing benefits. But my question is, what are the long-term ramifications? Because there are some nutrient deficiencies, even the most staunch vegan advocates who are physicians, they have a list of supplements that you should take. And in my opinion, if you must supplement for a diet, mm -hmm. then it is probably not a diet that humans would have consumed, right? It's a diet, it's yeah. a diet of a diet of modern convenience that we can yeah, get right. the foods shipped around from the world and we can take these supplements that are made. And so, so from that perspective, and and just to get, give your audience an idea, I always look at everything through an ancestral lens. How did humans do this once upon a time? Even only forget about, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, even just four or 500 years ago, right? Before mm. we had this, this ability to transport food everywhere and we had just access to food 24 seven. I think food availability is also a big issue where just because you can get a blueberry 365 days a year doesn't mean you should probably eat blueberries yeah. 365 days a year. So, so, so I think the vegan diet has, a, has some shortcomings. And the other problem I see with it is that the human body, I was just actually looking at this research the other day. So it's funny that we're talking about it now. The conversion rate for something like an essential fatty acid like EPA and DHA that mm -hmm. comes in animal form, like from salmon, you're going to get you're going to get those in their bioavailable form in animal products. In a plant, say a walnut, right? If you're going to get your omega threes, people say, "Well, I, I I eat nuts." Okay, well, alpha linoleic acid, the parent compound to EPA and DHA coming from plants, that the the elongation pathway, the conversion rate is in the single digits for most people. And that's and that's just based and that's based on your genetics as well, whether the enzymes are active. And if you have a, a diet that's very high in omega six, which would come from these seed oils that you see, like uh, soybean oil, canola oil, uh, safflower oil, if your diet is too high in those, that's going to impair that conversion rate even more because those two fatty acids will compete for the same enzyme that would ultimately convert. Uh, ALA, alpha linoleic acid into EPA and DHA. So there are a lot of factors in which is why I think unless you're truly digging into the research and understanding the human body, I think it might be a little bit dangerous to just go into a vegan diet. I, I've seen a lot of people fall apart and it, mm -hmm. it's because of the lack of protein, the lack of fatty acids, and they have brain fog and they have these things and they can yes. go for a while, but then those nutrient deficiencies start to creep in and they feel, a lot of them tell me, I feel like the light switch got turned back on once I started eating salmon or once I started, once I had an egg. And to me, that tells me that's the power of animal nutrition and how bioavailable those nutrients are and how even just a little bit, even just a little bit of animal nutrition can, can help the body metabolically. So, so I'm not a, an advocate for a vegan diet. I understand people's reasons for doing it. If it's a personal reason, I wouldn't argue with somebody. But when it comes to biochemistry, I would argue and say, I don't think that's an optimal choice for people. I would like to see them uh, at least incorporate some animal products because I think, again, you want to get those bioavailable nutrients. And I think it's incredibly important. And as you said, especially for females, um, when it comes to things like cholesterol, it's incredibly important because that's the precursor to sex hormones. And, mm -hmm. you know, women are driven much more uh, uh, by hormones than men. Um and it's much more dynamic of an environment. So I think low fat diets for women are very dangerous uh, in a lot of ways. So yeah, I, I, I try to steer people away, but again, um, I'm, I'm sort of a, um, I know it doesn't seem like it, but I'm very agnostic when it comes to nutrition. I, I tell people the truth and then I let people make up their own mind because I want the freedom to be able to choose what I eat. And I want everyone to have that same freedom. Mm, yeah. I love that. That's your approach to it. And the protein side of it on a vegan diet. So obviously now there's becoming more and more options available around the fake meat or the yeah the vegan chicken vegan beef style of stuff what is your opinion around substituting the real meat for the vegan alternatives well it's a very similar story i think first so far most of those products are just highly processed foods and i don't think people realize like the two biggest ones in the world right now or again at least in the us are impossible and beyond those are the two brands. Um, one of them has a ton of GMO soy and the other one has a whole bunch of uh, inflammatory omega-6 seed oils. So, you know, I look at those as just processed foods and, and the difference between plant and animal protein is also in the amino acid profile, meaning that uh, 
animal protein is complete protein, whereas a plant protein is not necessarily a complete protein. Some can be, uh, but the amino acid profile is different. So it's going to perform differently in the body. The body will utilize it differently. It has a different digestibility. So certainly not equivalent nutritionally. And then again, there are factors. There's actually a great research paper out there that, um, that, that, uses a term that I had never actually heard before. It, they actually use the term meat factor, a meat mm. factor, meaning there is a there is a matrix in meat that we don't even fully understand in how it delivers nutrients yeah. to the human body. That that's how complex nature yeah. is. You know, we like to we like to think that we have it all figured out. And you know, I study biochemistry and I feel really smart. And then I read a paper that has words <sighs> in it I don't even know and I realize how much I still have to learn. So, yeah. you know, maintaining some of that humility, I think is really important. And so I would say that uh, I always operate on the on the idea that man-made foods are always guilty until proven innocent. So I, yeah. I never give them the benefit of the doubt until I can see it in the research. And so far, whether it comes to human health concerns or even believe it or not, environmentally, Mm -hmm. properly raised animals in a regenerative agriculture model is better for the environment than the processed food, uh, fake meat alternative. So whether you're looking for human health or whether you're looking to help the environment, you're not doing so by purchasing the fake meat products. And there's a lot of research to back that up. So again, yeah. we want, we just want to dispel myths, let people have the truth and then let them make the decisions they want. But I would recommend against the fake foods and, and a lot of vegetarians recommend against them as well, because they see them as highly processed foods too. Yeah. It's so interesting. And it just goes to highlight again, just sticking to the whole foods, like the food that you know where it's come from, the food that you know exactly what's in it. And even the the point I want to highlight again of what you said, because I loved it around the fact that if you have to have a list of supplements to complete your diet, then maybe it's just about reassessing or relooking at it because it's a very privileged way of living that you can eat this way. I mean, vegan food is typically higher priced anyway because they can charge more for it. And then you have to also buy all of these supplements on top of it as well to make sure that your body is getting everything that it needs. And I think that in itself just says a lot about the approach to health in a vegan I agree. way. Yeah. 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 So again, we know that health is obviously individualized to everybody. It's going to be so different. But if somebody is wanting to start to make just a couple of simple changes in their life, they're like, okay, I think I want to start a journey of becoming healthiest version of myself, but maybe they're still a little bit overwhelmed with all of the information and they're not, they don't know where to begin. What do you recommend like the easiest and simple changes that somebody can make just to start to improve their health slowly? Well, we, we covered the first big one because I always say yeah. nutrition is king when it comes to, yeah. you know, a, a, you know, you can't out exercise a bad diet. Right. So I think always starting just with the most minimally processed food diet you can, mm -hmm. you can consume. And again, that can look incredibly simple. That can be something just like, you know, eggs and some Greek yogurt with some berries for breakfast. Right. So, so, you know, incredibly simple. I tell people all the time, brown some ground beef, throw in some organic frozen vegetables, and that's your dinner. It does not have to be overly complicated. You don't have to be a chef. You don't have to have a million recipes. I promise you, you can, and if you're okay eating the same thing from, you know, for, I always tell people, keep it very, very simple. Have five or six recipes you like, go with them until you start to create that habit, right? You want to dig into that habit. So nutrition is always first, get to the most unprocessed version of a diet you can. And then, you know, a really simple thing that you can do, even if you're, you have a, uh, the term gym intimidation, you know, like you're afraid to go to the gym because you're afraid you're not going to know how to do anything. I, I used to have that for sure. Um, you can start with something as simple as taking a 15 minute walk after every meal. I was just reading an, an amazing paper that even a 15 minute walk postprandially, meaning after a meal, was more effective than one long 45 minute walk per day and at, at controlling blood sugar. And again, that's mm -hmm. what we're trying to do. We're trying to set the body up for metabolic wellness. So yeah. if you can just get in the habit of, I go, I, I eat a meal, whatever it is, if you're eating three meals a day, if you're eating two meals a day, if you're eating one meal a day, having your meal and then going for a walk, it doesn't have to be, you know, it's not a jog, just at a, at a, at a decent pace for 15 minutes. You know, I happen to live on a block where if you go around the whole thing, it's about a mile and at a, at a leisurely pace, it's about 15 minutes. So I have gotten in the habit every time I'm done with that meal, rain or shine, 
I will go take a walk. I listen to my favorite podcast. Sometimes I save one just for walks. You do that after every meal and you will improve your blood sugar control. And if you're doing that in conjunction with a less processed food diet, all of a sudden you're going to start seeing some changes. So those are generally speaking, two things that just about everybody can do and incredibly effective. And at any age, I've seen it with people in their thirties. I've seen it with people in their sixties. And uh, once you make that a habit, um, you know, again, positive habits start to stack on top of themselves. Mm, I love that. And so with the walking after a meal for 15 minutes, let's say somebody has a very busy day, their job is quite full on. Is there a meal like breakfast, lunch, or dinner that would be most effective for them to do that walk or any of them? From the research I've seen, it just matters that you move. Now, okay. now, although although I will say, so let's I'll segue a little bit. The timing of food does seem to matter though. So that's in keeping with circadian biology. We yeah. seem to be, which makes a lot of sense, you know, creatures that sort of we evolved in the sun and we sleep at night. You know, we're not nocturnal or diurnal. Mm -hmm. So, so, so our food does, believe it or not, the same exact meal can metabolize differently and have a different blood sugar response if eaten during the day as opposed to eaten at night. So I will try and shift everything for people towards. The daylight hours. Now it's a lot easier here in the U.S. It's it's we're we're just about to approach in about six days. We're going to approach our longest day. In fact, right now it's seven thirty at night, and you can see in the windows oh, behind me, yeah. it's still it's still pretty bright out. So yeah. so so that's a lot easier in the summertime. A little a little harder in winter as the day is compressed, but um, that's really important. So so I'm also an advocate for intermittent fasting. And I know that term sometimes scares people because it's one trendy and people also think I can't go without food. But I, I just quickly remind people, if you sleep for eight hours, usually you don't eat. So you fasted for eight hours. So I, I, I'm not saying that you need to go days without food. I'm simply saying, say you have dinner at 7 p.m. All I'm asking is that you don't have any form of breakfast. You can have water if you wake up that early. You can have some tea. You can even have, have some black coffee, but don't have any caloric intake until 7 a.m. the next day. So start with just a 12-hour window. For most people, that's incredibly doable. Um, that and, and so shifting that eating window, again, towards the earlier part of the day is going to be beneficial. And so I would say, even just for safety reasons, try to get your walks uh, in the morning when you can get some bright sun in your eyes, and then maybe right around dusk, because as the light spectrum changes, it starts to signal to the body that the day is ending. And so you're going to upregulate things like melatonin production and get your body ready for bed. So I guess maybe now that I'm talking through this with you, I would say, yeah, I would say try to make those walks within those sort of dawn and dusk hours as well. I guess it makes perfect mm -hmm. sense. Food, while everything we would have done would have been during the day. It would have been too dangerous to go out at night once upon a time. Yeah. Yeah. So so I would say, yeah, food, walking, activity, try to, try to cycle those things during your daylight hours if possible. Yeah, interesting. And so your view on intermittent fasting isn't necessarily, you know, fast into the day and don't have breakfast until lunchtime. It's more about stop, like try and have your last meal around sunset hours and your first meal more around sunrise hours in the morning and give your body that break over the night, like the, the dark, the night period. It is. Although I will say the beauty of intermittent fasting, I think, is that you can tailor it to yourself. The, most of the research says that eating earlier in the day is better. Although, yes, you know, I used to work in a hospital where it was way more productive for me to skip the first meal of the day and just eat mm -hmm later in the day. And so, I, so, and so I did that knowing that it wasn't ideal, but I still wanted to get the benefits of the fast. So I still wanted to get the metabolic benefits, the autophagy benefits, uh, autophagy is that cellular cleanup process, right? I think that's, that's one of our built-in uh, cancer defenders, right? Where yeah. when, when cells become damaged and they have parts that don't work anymore, when you are in the fasted state, the body is able to use this process called autophagy to start cleaning up those, the cellular debris and then recycle them. So, mm -hmm. The, in in the fasted state, that's that's very much upregulated. So I wanted to get those benefits. So I would still fast, even though I knew it wasn't optimal. And now that I've left that hospital, I have a different work schedule, and I can eat more earlier in the day. For instance, today, you know, my I'm done for the day. I actually finished from hours ago, so I will actually be done until tomorrow. And mm -hmm. I sleep better. I feel much lighter as I go to sleep. Um, nothing worse than having a 
a big yeah. giant meal a couple of you know an hour before you go to bed. I never I never felt good doing that anyway, so it just was mm -hmm. natural for me. But yeah, so I think fasting can fit in any way you you like it. Ideally, the daylight hours is is most consistent with our biology. But but if you can just do it, do whatever works for you, and that's still better than the sort of chronic food consumption. I think. Yeah. Okay. And so I, when it comes to the research that I have done in intermittent fasting, I find that majority of it is based around males and their 24 hour window cycle. What is your opinion on intermittent fasting for females? What a great question. You are so, so right on that. Most of the research mm -hmm. is done on, 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 on males. And so the, the one tip that I'll give, um, so there's a, I actually just attended a conference where I spoke and there were there was a doctor there. She was speaking about fasting and 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 women. So I'm I'm going to uh steal her thunder and, yeah. and uh because she's not here. So <laughs> but she said uh she she said um fasting can be very effective for women. However, you want to do it at the front end of the cycle rather than the back end, yeah. uh closer to menstruation, because mm -hmm. just the way it works with estrogen is more yeah. uh, predominant in the front of the cycle, and that's more conducive to stress and fasting. That's where you can push yourself through workouts. But in the back end of a cycle, when progesterone is more dominant, you want to take it easy. You want to, you know, that may be why women tend to crave things like chocolate because magnesium is also critical in uh, producing progesterone. So, you know, those kinds of things are really important. So when a woman's cycle, I think varies, that's when you want to maybe fast less towards the end of the cycle uh, where you can fast a little bit more aggressively towards the front end of the cycle as well. So, uh, and there's a great book called Fast Like a Girl. If, if any of your female audience is interested, if you're they're interested in, in, in fasting, that book really highlights the differences in, in men and women when it comes to fasting yeah. and in all age ranges. So, you know, uh, menopause, post-menopause, pre-menopause. So I think those things are really important. And, and it's a great question because you're right. We need more research with fasting when it comes to women, but women can definitely do it they just have to be more strategic about it. Whereas mm -hmm. men can generally speaking, do it consistently all the time. Yeah, I love that. And I think you're so right. It's so important for women to recognize that they do typically have that 28, give or take day cycle. And you have to work with that rather than against it. Whereas men, Absolutely. it can be 24 hours. Yeah, totally. Yep. Amazing. So if we shift gears a little bit, because I wanted to touch on how you mentioned around blueberries and how, you know, <laughs> you can now get blueberries like any any day of the year, whether they're in mm. season, whether they're out of season. And that goes for all fruits and veggies as well. And for humans and their gut health, diversity is key. Having that different range of nutrients that you get. But humans, we are creatures of habit. We love to go for the things that are in our comfort zone. And let's say you love capsicum. Typically, you go to the supermarket and you'll buy a capsicum. Doesn't matter whether it's in season or not, because you have access to it. However, it can also prevent you from stepping outside that comfort zone and trialing some different fruits and veggies and the impact that that might also have on gut health. But I would love for us to touch on. Gut health is also, you know, a lot of those sayings of your gut is your second brain and just the importance of making sure that you are nourishing it and, and building good gut microbiome as well. Sure. And 70% of the immune system resides in the gut. So I think when it comes to uh, gut research, I think we are in the infancy, you know, it's where mm -hmm. we're at the beginning stages. So I, I, I love when, um, when I read new research, because I feel like there's, there's just something new coming out every day. And I, um, attended a conference years ago where a a PhD student, she was giving a lecture. She said something that just stuck with me. This was probably six, five, six years ago now. And this, this one phrase she said stuck with me. She said, because somebody asked her, what is the ideal microbiome look like, right? From, yeah. a, from a bacterial perspective, microbes, you know, what should we have more of, less of? Mm -hmm. And she said, it was great. She said, a healthy microbiome, because it's so different for everybody. A healthy microbiome is the microbiome you have when you're healthy. And I thought, wow, that's it's she. I thought she was being a wise ass, but she wasn't. She was actually really being genuine. Um, and and so, what do I mean by that? I, I think that often we're trying to look at this the way we look at some other systems, right? Or the way we look at, say, blood markers, and we say, yeah. well, if if it's in this range, it's healthy. But but the truth is, there are even people who don't eat a lot of fiber who still have incredibly robust health. So can we then say, well, they're they're not healthy and their microbiome isn't healthy. I don't think we can say that. So I'll highlight something to you that, because this is going to answer your question, because I think mm -hmm. one of the most potent things you can do for your gut is to include fermented foods in the diet. 
even more than fiber, believe it or not. I know that, I know that, I think this is going to be, I think the future of research is going to show us that fiber, not that it's unimportant, but I think it's gotten too much of a, a halo because I see a lot of people who remove fiber and do better. And some people uh, who, who, I mean, there are people that I know that are on carnivore diets that, that are metabolically incredibly healthy and they don't, and they, but they never consume any fiber. How can that be if fiber is essential for the gut? But here's the thing, you said diversity, microbiome diversity, microbial diversity. Well, there's a great study out of Stanford just recently that showed that fermented foods, and I even wrote some of the list down here. So you're gonna love this. Your audience is gonna love this, it's a scoop. Um, so yogurt, kefir, fermented cottage cheese, kimchi, fermented vegetables, uh, kombucha, all of these things led to an overall microbial diversity and stronger effects than just fiber alone. Mm. And there were immune cells that were upregulated and 19 inflammatory proteins that were downregulated uh, in the, so they were basically pitting fermented foods against fiber. And in all categories, the fermented foods outperformed the fiber foods. Mm-hmm. So that's really, that's a really different idea than we've always been told, right? I've always sure. been told I was trained this way. Yeah. We don't consume enough fiber. We don't consume enough fiber. But it seems that the end result of fiber essentially is the production of short chain fatty acids in the gut, things like butyrate. Well, mm-hmm. it seems that some of these fermented foods introduce the bacteria that are going to produce these short chain fatty acids, and they can upregulate some of these processes on their own. So, and I know from my perspective, I consume sauerkraut and kefir, uh, raw goat kefir from a local farm, almost with every meal, just a few ounces. Um, And I was actually able to eliminate my seasonal allergies. And I've had allergies since I was, since I was born, Michaela, since I was born. Yeah, that's insane. (laughs) So it's just really amazing. And, And I can honestly say, since I've started this fermented food thing the last couple of years, I hardly ever get sick anymore. So that speaks to the, you know, the, the oh, immune yeah. system being predominantly located in the gut. So, so I guess what I would say is introduce different fermented foods and mm-hmm. see how you respond. Some people, if they have a gut dysbiosis, which a lot of people do, fiber can be very difficult for them. And fermented foods can be very difficult for them because it's kind of like if you have a lawn with a lot of weeds and then you throw fertilizer on that lawn, you're going to grow the weeds as well. So you have to sort of start to eliminate the processed foods, the processed sugars, all of these things to sort of help the gut rebalance. But I think in the end, these these fermented foods, which once upon a time were the way we always ate because fermentation was a way of preserving foods for the long winter when things wouldn't grow. But I think they're gonna become a key to the diet uh, as, as, as the research evolves. So I'm a huge, huge advocate of fermented foods, even more than fiber, because it seems like the research is starting to tell us that. Yeah, wow, I love that. And fermented foods are becoming so much more accessible these days mm-hmm. as well. I feel like they're popping up everywhere, even in supermarkets with your kimchi, your sauerkraut, yes. all of that. Yeah, so I definitely yes. think it's something that that is a, a simple addition to your meals. And I always find, because I know that for a lot of my clients, when I tell them to start to incorporate a lot of these probiotics and fermented foods, they're like, how do I even do that? And I think the simplest way, I always think about it, sauerkraut, you could literally add, which is your fermented cabbage, spicy, add to literally any meal as a condiment, like Everything. your meat and veg, your salads, whatever it is. Kimchi, Absolutely. I find kind of more goes with the Asian style dishes, mm-hmm. your stir fries, your noodle dishes, all of that sort of stuff, literally just adding it on top. And I always say though, start small, and slowly mm-hmm. build up <laughs> having the um, <laughs> fermented foods because it does ferment in your gut, which can cause a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of gas, bloating when you first do introduce it, but all natural and all normal. Yeah, and uh, over time, you're you're essentially changing the landscape of the of the gut microbiome. So that just yeah. takes a little bit of time. And same thing with uh, kefir. I, I think kefir is a is a magical type food. I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I I have put so many clients on that who have told me just amazing stories of how they feel on it. And if you can get it, if you can get it raw from a local farm, even better, because it just has more of the enzymes intact. I've even seen people who have lactose intolerance be able to yeah. handle uh, the fermented kefir. Uh, and there's some research out there that, that, that shows that. So it's a Quite, quite incredible. And I always grew up loving yogurt. So yogurt's a slightly less fermented version of kefir, but either one of those would be a great addition. And yogurt is a fantastic dessert. You can sprinkle some cinnamon and some berries on it, even put it in the freezer for a few minutes. It feels like ice cream. 
Yeah. So you can do, you can do a lot with those fermented foods and, and you can use them to crowd out some of the more uh, processed desserts even. Yeah, I love it. No, it's so interesting and just such small, simple little changes to make the biggest difference, which I love. Mm -hmm. Now, I do have some quick fire questions for you. Are you ready? I'm ready. Awesome. What is one thing that you must do every morning to set your day up? Get morning sunlight. I have yeah. a job that I'm tied to a screen, uh, but I always, I get a glass of water with a teaspoon of salt full spectrum mineral sea salt. And I drink that while literally staring at the sun <laughs> just to get that, just to get, yeah, just to get those morning rays mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, setting my day up, you know, hydrating properly. So that's been a morning ritual for years now. Incredible. What is one thing everyone can do every day just to improve their life? Move. Move. No matter what you're doing, as we said before, walking is is simple. Uh, it, it you don't have to go to the gym. Just understand that your body is exquisitely designed for movement, and sitting is probably one of the worst things that we can do. Even though I'm doing it right now, and we all have to do it. Uh, so really, just find excuses. I there's a grocery store near my apartment, but I don't. When I go grocery shopping, I don't do it all in one day. I buy just a few things so that I have an excuse to go back multiple times a week. And honestly, I know it sounds silly, but that's my some days that's all I can get for exercise because I'm yeah. stuck working. So, so, you know, if you have a grocery store that's within a mile, if it's a beautiful day, take a walk to the grocery store and take back what you can carry. And, and you get a little bit of exercise, you get a little bit of nature exposure. So just move your body. It, it, it will reward you. The more you move, yeah. uh, the better you'll feel. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. What is your favorite quote and why? Okay. Can I give two? <laughs> I don't want to cheat, but okay. So the, 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 the first one that comes to mind is a PT Barnum quote, uh, comfort is the enemy of progress, mm -hmm. which I love because the more yeah. we, the more we're comfortable with things in life, the less we're likely to go out and try new things. Right. 100%. Um, and the second one also has to do with comfort. Uh, and that is a John F. Kennedy quote that says, uh, too often, we enjoy the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought. And mm. I, I always love that quote because I think um, we're so, we're so into our opinions. We are, we get rigid and we don't really think things through anymore. And I, I try to pride myself on always learning something new and being willing to change my mind when presented with new evidence. So that's my, that's my second favorite quote. Ironically, they both have comfort in them, but yeah well comfort like i mean humans we're creatures of habit we love being in that comfort zone but if nothing changes nothing changes if you just keep doing the same thing over and over again you're just going to keep getting the same result and that's where you if you want growth if you want change and whether that's in, in any area of your life but your health as well you have to get outside of that comfort zone you have to be open to learning new ideas new habits new information and but that's where you're going to see the biggest changes in your life agree more yeah amazing now there is one question that i do love to ask all of my podcast guests and this is that in the distant future when you are looking back at your life what do you think will be your biggest achievement or one thing that you will be most proud of and now this might be something that you've actually already achieved or it could also be something that you are hoping to do in the future wow what a great question um so i think it's going to be in the future i think my ultimate goal, originally I was, you know, I'm trained to be a clinician and I've yeah. seen clients for years, but I think I'm in the middle of a, of a change in my thought process. And I think I, I, I really hope to open up a center someday that will be sort of immersion education, meaning yeah. that people can come to this center and, and, and myself and a business partner have actually put on a, a few retreats and we have one coming up this Amazing. September where people will come, they will spend the weekend and they'll will have formal classes that I will teach and yeah. we'll go over, you know, science and biochemistry and the latest research, but then they will actually, it's not gonna, it's gonna be on a farm. Then they'll actually be able to go outside and experience some of those similar uh, uh, things. Like if we're talking about grounding, the science behind grounding, then they'll actually go outside and actually ground or maybe the science yeah. behind cold therapy. Then they'll have an opportunity to get in, into a cold tub. You'll be able yeah. to experience cooking from a chef who does nose to tail cooking, um, yeah, wow. experience what real, 
ancestral living is like, and then be able to maybe take one or two of those things back to your real life. So I think to, to put it in a nutshell, what I want mm. people to think when they think of me someday is educator. I, I want people to think, you know, he tried to take really complex topics like biochemistry and teach us how to apply these to everyday life and help us improve our life because of it. I love that. That is so incredibly powerful. That's amazing. And amazing that you're even already running those retreats where you get to educate people and teach them how to incorporate it into their day-to-day life. It's, Michaela, it's so fun to see people come with one mindset and then even yeah. just after three days go home thinking, you know, I'm going to change this. I, I, last year, we always, just a quick story, we had a guest who was, um, she was a smoker. She came to the retreat as a smoker, which I think is hysterical, came to a wellness mm-hmm. retreat as a smoker. But but she just sent me a message last month and mm-hmm. told me that she quit smoking because wow. of her experience. She said she felt so good eating real food, being in nature, being with a community of people that were all at different phases of their health journey, working on their health, that she thought, you know, why would I want to, why would I want to continue smoking? Yeah. So she decided to s- stop smoking. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was so proud of her. I, I can't even tell you. So just yeah. to have that small little experience was, uh, was enough to tell me, you know, I think this is what you want to do with your life. Yeah. 100%. No, that's incredible. Now, did you want to tell the audience what you have coming up? If anything exciting, how they can work with you or where the listeners can even find you? Sure. Always uh, the, 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 the two best places would be mm-hmm. Instagram. Yeah. And so that's uh, at Perpetual Health Co. And uh, I'm actually very active now on Substack, writing a lot of long form articles, doing some sort of mini, I wouldn't even call it a podcast. I would call them mini conversations, like 15 minute conversations with other nutritionists. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so that's perpetualhealth.substack.com. And I, yeah. I try to return all messages. Um, you can actually even go to our website, which is perpetualhealth.co. That's where we have information on the retreats and whatever is, is upcoming. I travel around a lot. I give talks. I was just in Texas and I was just in Tennessee over the last few months giving talks. And so I like to travel around. I like to go wherever I can and spread the word. And so if anybody wants to follow, uh, get in touch with me, those are the best ways to do it. Awesome. And I will put all of the links to everything that you just mentioned in the show notes for easy access for the listeners, which is awesome. But thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of your knowledge with us today. It has been incredible. And I have loved every part of our conversation. Same here. Thank you very much for having me. Another incredible episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it and you got as much insightful knowledge and information out of this episode as I did. I would absolutely love to hear what your key takeaway was. Just head over to my Instagram, which is KJ Wellness with three S's and send me a message and share it with me. As always, I love connecting with you all, but I hope you enjoy the rest of the day or the evening whenever you are listening to this podcast episode and I will chat with you in the next episode very soon. Bye.